If you have your copy of God's Word, we're in the uh, book of Hebrews, chapter 6, this morning. Hebrews, chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 20 this morning of Hebrews, chapter 6. The message this morning uh, is hope as the anchor for the soul. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I have a video to introduce this message. It's the deep breath before the plunge. I don't want to be in a battle. But waiting on the edge of what I can't escape is even worse. Is there any hope, Gandalf? There never was much hope. Just a fool's hope. <clears throat> so this morning I want to talk to you about hope. Charles Spurgeon said, Hope what you please, but remember that hope without truth at the bottom of it is an anchor without a holdfast. A groundless hope is a mere delusion. The purpose of this passage this morning is that the Hebrew church and us would be strongly encouraged, in fact, it says that in the passage, to hold on to our hope as an anchor and not drift into the false hopes that this world has to offer. Hope is a powerful thing. Hope goes beyond positive thinking. You know, we hear a lot um, today about the power of positive thinking, and we are told to visualize certain things, visualize them happening and etc. You know, I'm sure before the big game tonight, uh, people were told to visualize you winning and visualize yourself throwing that touchdown pass and 
visualize this and visualize that as if all the answers to life rested in some sort of new age visualization techniques. You know what I found is that when you hope in something, it is a powerful motivator, especially when you know that hope is certain. And this is exactly what biblical hope is all about. It's not a hope in what you think will happen. It's not a hope in what might happen. It's a hope in what will certainly happen. It's not about running around being happy because you think everything is unicorns and rainbows and you just are delusional to the reality of life. If that's hope, then it's worthless. However, our hope is based on truth. It is based on what is for sure because God is the God of hope. And if our God is the God of hope, then we live in a world that is hopeless. Then you and I should be a people of hope, not a people of positive thinking, but people filled with the hope because we know the certainty of the promises of God in Christ Jesus. These people in the Hebrew church are facing hardships and even persecution because of their faith in Christ. And some of them are tempted to return to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews has continually pleaded with them to focus on the superiority of Christ over and above all other things. And that fact that he has uh, provided and the fact that he has provided salvation to them. And now he's giving them a reason for hope, not a reason for positive thinking or delusional thinking, but a recognition that our source of joy is Christ and our hope is anchored in the hope of the promises of God who cannot lie. That's what he's given. And so the author uses this image of an anchor. And look at what he says. We have this anchor of hope that enters in behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He has become our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he has come full circle. Remember in chapter 5, verse 10, he stopped his discussion on Melchizedek and now he returns to it. And he will develop that more in the next chapter. But here he's saying, listen, we have hope as an anchor for the soul. Now, why do ships have anchors? Well, you put an anchor out to stay where you are, or if you're in a storm, the anchor goes out so that the ship does not get blown into the shoreline or off course. Ships put out anchors to prevent uh, from drifting. A ship will even do this in calm waters to prevent from drifting. Listen, it does not matter if you're in a storm or if you're in some sort of calm area of your life. We need an anchor for our soul. These verses are a strong encouragement for us. We need hope. We need hope in Christ and all that is promised in Him. And very specifically, we hope in the promise of our salvation that's provided to us by God. And so in the storms of our life and in the calms of our life, we lay hold of our hope of salvation knowing that it is the anchor for our soul. Let's break down this passage of Scripture this morning and see how that is. So the first thing I want us to see is that our hope in future salvation 
is based on God's promise. We have to pay attention to what the author is doing here because he's giving us the basis of our hope through the story of Abraham. He talks about Abraham. Abraham is the example of one who had faith and patience and inherited the promises of God. The author's going back to Genesis chapter 22. Now, if you are not familiar with what happened in Genesis 22, it is where Abraham displayed his faith in God by his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. Let me read it to you. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and I have not withheld your son, your and you have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That sounds familiar, right? The author of Hebrews is applying this promise to believers in Christ Jesus. Then he tells us why our hope in future salvation is based on God's promise to Abraham. So let's break that down. First of all, God never fails. God never fails. Can I just tell you today that God never fails. There are a lot of things in this life that will fail us. If you have a car, it's probably going to break down. Cars fail us. If you have something uh, in your house that's an appliance, it's probably going to quit working at some point because they fail us. You ever have a friend um, say they're going to do something and you know that they're not going to do it or they forget? Friends fail us. Even our spouse will fail us. But God never fails. The author wants us to understand that God is an unfailing God. And he's using Abraham to show it. Abraham was the father of all who believed. And in hope, he believes against hope, it tells us in Romans. Abraham's life is the story of an unfailing God. God comes to Abraham when he is still named Abram. He's living in the land of Ur, and God commands Abram to leave everything he knows, to leave his friends, to leave his city, to leave his relatives, and go to the place where God will show him. That's right, I said would show him. He hadn't showed him yet. Abraham, pack, Abram, pack your bags up and leave. Where, God? Oh, that's not important, just leave. Abram obeyed. It wasn't like today. He could not just get all his stuff into the moving truck and go. He didn't have Facebook. He didn't have a cell phone. He couldn't say hi to his friends back home when God said, said go. It meant permanent separation from everything that he knew. Furthermore, he has no idea where he's going or what's going to happen when he gets to where he is going. Think of all the uncertainty. He's going to know no one. Will they even speak the same language that he speaks? Where is he going to live? I mean, he couldn't just go to Keller Williams and look for a house. That's not the way it worked. In faith, Abram obeyed. And God promises to make him the father of many nations. His name Abram even meant 
exalted father. One problem. His wife, Sarah, she was barren. Plus, they're old. And they had no children, even though God promised. Imagine what things were like as he is 75 years old, going into Canaan with no kids and a name that means exalted father. Yeah, right. To make things worse, when Abram's 99 years old, the Lord appears to him again and reaffirms his promise that he would be the father of many nations. That's in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4. And then God changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. So from 75 to 99 is 24 years, and he still did not have a son that God promised, except for Ishmael, who he had through Hagar. And so now here he is with no children. His name goes from exalted father to the father of multitude. Abraham dies at 175 years old. And by then he had fathered several nations to the descendants of Ishmael. Through Isaac, he fathered twin grandsons. Their names were Esau and Jacob. Though Abraham did not see it, he died with faith in God's promises. God validated his promises that his descendants, both physically and spiritually, are indeed as many as the stars of heaven and as numerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. You ever sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham? Why do we sing that? Because everyone that comes to faith in Jesus Christ is ultimately a descendant of Abraham spiritually. Let's just be clear. God doesn't make promises he doesn't keep. God never fails. There will never be a time in your life where you put your trust in the promises of God and he does not come through. Granted, he may not answer the way you want him to answer, but he will always answer in his time. He will always keep his word, and he will never fail. And when he promises eternal life to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, you can take it to the bank, because he meant what he said. Not only that, not only does God never fail, But the purposes of God are immutable. The purposes of God are immutable. Look at verse 17 and see what it says. It says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. It says, God desired, in the Greek, that is the word bulomai, which is to desire with intent. It tells us what he desired. To show with intent, it says, the unchangeable character of his purpose. Now that word purpose in the Greek is buli, which is connected with desire, and it means a thought-out plan. The purpose of God is to, is to who? 
does it say? The purpose of God in that passage of Scripture says it's to the heirs of the promise. It says the purpose is unchanging, or we would say immutable. It doesn't, there's no change in it. Now, in these verses, his purpose is linked to God appointing his son as high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The purposes of God are immutable. They do not change. And his purpose was that he would be glorified by sending his Son, after the order of Melchizedek, to be high priest forever to or for the heirs of the promise and and be that high priest forever. Now, it's an entirely preposterous to think that the sovereign, immutable God of the universe would purposely send His Son to redeem the heirs of promise, according to this passage of Scripture, only to leave the fulfillment of that promise up to the so-called free will of a dead and rebellious sinner who are bound to their sinful nature. That's insane. If God left salvation up to the will of the dead, rebellious sinner, guess what? No one would ever be saved. No one. Because Scripture's clear. No one seeks after God. It doesn't say some people seek after God. It doesn't say one person seeks after God. It doesn't say the righteous seek after God. In fact, it says no one is righteous. So if no one is righteous, if everyone is dead, and no one seeks after God, how would anyone ever be saved? Let me answer. They wouldn't. In verse 17... We are called the heirs of the promise. Now, an heir does not choose to be an heir. Think about it. If we could choose to be heirs of whomever we wanted to be, that would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, we could pick the wealthiest most well-known of people, and say, well, I'm going to be their heir. Wouldn't that be fantastic if we could just pick whoever we wanted to be heirs of? Heirs don't choose to be heirs, but rather they are chosen by the owner of the estate. The owner can choose whoever they want to be their heir because it's their estate. They have the right to dispense their estate in any way that they want to do so, any way they choose to do so. Listen, church, the purposes of God are immutable. They're not changing. And we are the heirs. Those of us who know Christ are the heirs. And He is the holder of the estate. Yes, there are those that say, well, God must give everyone an equal chance to choose to be His heir. Really? Based on what? Based on what? When do we get to the, go to the owner of any estate and say to them, you are obligated to give me a chance to be your heir? Try doing that. Try going to someone that's extremely wealthy and say, hey, you're obligated to give me a chance to be your heir. That's ridiculous. It doesn't work that way. There are those that will say, well, God looked down through time 
And he had foreknowledge that we would choose him, and therefore he made us heirs based upon the fact that we would choose him. However, that goes against Scripture. God chose us before we would ever choose him. God's not going to be robbed of his sovereignty. God chooses the heirs. He chose Abraham. He rejected everyone else. He chose Isaac. He rejected Ishmael. He chose Jacob. He rejected Esau. In fact, in Romans we read that before they were even born, the Lord declared, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. God is entirely sovereign in His choices. And if we want to cry out to God, well, God, that's not fair, then I would strongly encourage you to read Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 23, where Paul answers the question of God being accused of injustice. And the response is, God will have mercy on whomever God will have mercy on, and He will harden whoever He wants to harden. And who are you to question God? God's not subject to our notion of what we think is fair and not fair. In Isaiah chapter 46, we read this. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God says that He's spoken, and He's going to bring it to pass, and He's purposed, and He's going to do it. And these verses... In Isaiah, he's speaking specifically of raising up a pagan king. God is not bound by man's will to do whatever man wants. God's purposes are immutable. They will not change. What he decides, he does. And so when scripture tells us this is his purpose, is to give his elect people to his son, and that a son will not lose them, then that is what will happen. He will accomplish his purpose. You can deny it all you want. It's not going to change it. And when we deny that God is sovereign and take salvation out of the hands of God and place it into the hands of fallen man, well, best of luck to you. Because my salvation is not based on me but based on God's purpose, that I am an heir of His promise, and therefore my hope in future salvation is secure because it can't be lost because it's based on God's promise, not mine. Let's move on. God, it says to us, is incapable of lying. The author in verse 18 says, it's impossible for God to not to, to lie. Now, this may seem rather obvious. People would say, well, duh, doesn't that make sense? God can't lie. But the author still puts it in there. If God were to ever lie, it would be denial of his nature. The point that is being made is if God said it, then it's true. We don't get to go out and question God. And so when he says that his son Jesus made purification for our sins, Back there in Hebrews chapter 1. And when he now says Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, then it's true. He doesn't lie. Now, if you have ever 
fished or you've ever hunted or you've ever played golf or anything like that, then you know what it's like to bend the truth. Right? Just a little bit. You know, you do the, the fish was this big kind of thing. You know? The reason we bend the truth is to make ourselves look better. That's why we do it. Or we're going to sell something. So we tell a little white lie here and there. And we think, well, it's no big deal. You know, last week I was doing my, my taxes. And you know what? It would be easy to overlook something. Just change one little thing. So I don't have to pay so much in in my taxes. I mean, lots of people do it. Lots of people overlook something. or They, they fudge the numbers just a little bit. It's no big deal. Sometimes we withhold the truth from others to think things are going to work out or it's going to work in our advantage. And we think, well, that's okay. Like when you sell something, you don't disclose everything that's wrong with it. And our response is, well, they didn't ask. Well, how would they know to ask? We are a people that are bent towards compromising the truth. I mean, we just are. That's, that's just who we are. We want to compromise our truth. But yet, let someone accuse you of being a liar, and we get all bent out of shape, right? Somebody says, well, you're a liar. You're, re you're ready to punch them in the mouth. Yet you know it's true that you are. You know, I've bent the truth. But listen, it says it's impossible for God to lie. It's not even capable of occurring. He has never lied. He's never bent the truth. He's never told a little white lie. He, that's not who God is. He never will lie in all of eternity. Now think about this. Our hope in future salvation is based on God's promise. And so when we doubt that or doubt any promise of God, we are calling God a liar. So when you say, well, I doubt that promise, you're saying, God, you're a liar. You say, well, well, Pastor, I don't know if that's true. That's strong language. Well, it is strong language. Good thing I can back it up. First John chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And so you either believe in the promise of God, especially his promise concerning his Son, or you're calling him a liar. Our hope in future salvation is based on God's promise. And God is incapable of lying. And so to back up the claim that our hope in future salvation is based upon God's promise, the author of Hebrews has revealed to us that God never fails. That his purposes are immutable. That he is incapable of lying. And then he gives us one more thing. God guarantees it with an oath. Just by God saying it should be enough. If God said it, we can take it to a bank. In verse 13, we read that God made a promise to Abraham. And it says, he could swear by no one greater than himself. And then in verse 17, it says, God guaranteed it with an oath. 
So God adds an oath to his promise. And I find myself asking the question, why? Why would God make a promise and then add an oath to that promise? I mean, I don't understand. He's God. He makes this promise and he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to add an oath to it. You think he did that for his benefit? You think he was afraid of breaking his promise? He does it for our benefit. You know why? Because we're weak. He adds an oath to his promise to give us a double assurance and to undergird our hope. Furthermore, what does God swear by? I mean, think of all the things that God could swear by. The sun or the moon or the stars. He could swear by the world. He could swear by his covenant people, Israel. He could swear by, by all kinds of things. Anything that's valuable to God, he could swear by it. But there's something that is more valuable to God above all else. There's something that's more valuable to God than anything else. There's one person that's worthy of honor and glory who holds, holds more value than all other people. And that is himself. And so God swears by himself because it says there is no one greater. Now imagine. God, who can't lie, makes a promise and swears it by an oath that it is certain. And so you have two things that are unchangeable. A promise and an oath. And that should cause our hope in future salvation to never fail. Now some people might think, well, whoop-dee-doo, pastor. I have a hope of future salvation. How does that help me right here, right now, today? Big deal. Well, I believe this text answers that question. How does that help you today? And this is how I believe it answers it. Our hope in future salvation is an anchor for troubled times. It's an anchor for troubled times. Our hope that is based on His promises is our spiritual anchor. The anchor is a picture of strength that digs in to the land at the bottom of the waters and it holds the ship where it needs to be. It keeps the ship from floating aimlessly around. The winds can roar and the waves can crash against the ship, but the ship rides the waves and it's held steady by something that's outside of itself. And so with that thought in mind, let's see how our hope is an anchor for troubled times first. Christ is our refuge. Christ is our refuge. Look at verse 18. It says, We who have fled for refuge. It's important because the author is identifying with the hearers. He's identifying himself with those whom he's writing to. That's why he says we. Now he does not tell us what it is that they have fled from. And this language to flee for refuge is, is seeking safety or refuge at a specific location. In fact, everyone who heard the author say this or write or, or read it would know exactly what he was talking about. You see, there in their minds, they would have immediately gone to the cities of refuge that were set up in the Old Testament. 
And so the way it worked was when someone committed manslaughter without intent, so I accidentally kill someone, I could flee to one of these six cities that, would, that was set up so that their relative wouldn't come and kill me. And I could have a trial. This is based on Numbers chapter 35. God lays it all out. Now, this is a picture of God offering refuge for sinners who flee from the wrath that is to come. Fast forward to verse 20. The author says, Jesus is the forerunner and the high priest forever. And what does he say about Jesus? That he enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus has access to the holiest place of all. He's the high priest who enters the Holy of Holies forever. He goes to the place where no one else can go. Jesus entered the Holy of Holies once and for all with His precious blood and His atoning work for us is perfect and forever. Listen to me. Every sinner needs a refuge from the wrath of God to come. Jesus Christ is that refuge that God has provided for us. The question is, have you fled to that refuge? In other words, have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? We put our hope in a lot of things. But if you hope, if your hope is in anything other than Christ for salvation, then you are not saved. Our hope of salvation is in Christ alone. Our hope is an anchor for troubled times because Christ is our refuge. And because we hold fast to the hope of our future salvation. We hold fast to the hope of our future salvation. Let me be as clear as I possibly can. When the scripture says we hold fast to the hope that is set before us, that hope does not originate with us. But it comes from the outside. You see, the security of our salvation does not rest with us, but it rests on the promise and the unchangeable purpose of God. So don't think for one instant that your feeble grasp of God is what keeps your salvation. God has His hold on us. That secures our hope in heaven. New Testament scholar William Lane says this categorically. In Hebrews, the word hope never describes a subjective attitude, but always denotes the objective context of hope. Here our hope is tied to the effective promises of God, which are revealed through Jesus Christ. So why does the author say that we hold fast? If it depends totally on God and His unchangeable purpose, why do we have to have any hope in Him. Well, let's think back to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, where we heard something similar. It said, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now notice the language. It does not say, we will come to share in Christ. It says, we have come to share in Christ. And then it says, if we hold our original confidence. The author is saying that by our holding, our original confidence, it is proof that we belong to Christ. Hold, our hold doesn't cause it, 
but it proves it. We must hold fast to the hope of our future salvation, but the only way that we can is because we are already held fast by Christ. What is the evidence that we have or that we are followers of Christ holding fast to our hope of salvation? The power of Christ in us guarantees what will happen. John Piper says this, what Christ bought for us when he died was not the freedom from having to hold fast, but the enabling power to hold fast. What he bought was not the nullification of our wills as though we didn't have to hold fast, but the empowering of our wills because we want to hold fast. What he bought was not the canceling of the commandment to hold fast, but the fulfillment of the commandment to hold fast. So what does that mean? Well, how do we, how do we battle unbelief? We hold fast to the hope of our future salvation. How do we battle discouragement in our lives? We hold fast to the hope of our future salvation. How do we battle weak faith in our lives? We hold fast to the hope of our future salvation. How do we battle everything in our life spiritually? We hold fast to the hope of our future salvation. We take refuge in Christ because God promised and He swore an oath. And so we are encouraged to hold fast to the hope of our future salvation. And that is an anchor for our souls. Finally, let's see this. Our anchor of hope enables us to wait on God. The whole point of an anchor for a ship is to keep that ship from drifting. Keep it from drifting into rocks and, and reefs, going ashore, where the ship will eventually be destroyed. That's especially the case when storms come. The anchor of the ship meant safety, it meant security. The storms could rage, but a well-anchored ship would not move. The passage starts off looking to Abraham, and we could say that Abraham was faced with the storms in his life. In fact, we know that there were times where Abraham displayed weakness. If you remember, he thought that men in power were going to take his wife Sarah from him on two different occasions. And how did he handle that situation? Well, he lied and said she was his sister. We also know that he despaired and did not fully trust that God would provide him a son through his wife Sarah. How did he handle that situation? He went into Sarah's maid, Hagar, and she conceived Ishmael. Now, one would think that on these occasions that Abraham really messed up and that there's no way that God is going to bless Abraham. There's no way that God's going to bless Abraham after he does these kinds of things. After all, Abraham did wrong. But even though he did wrong, he never gave up hope. Which is why I shared from Romans about Abraham, Romans 4.18. In hope, he believed against hope. Has anyone ever faced a storm in here today? Have you ever faced a hardship? Suffering? Pain? Whatever it might be that has threatened to rob you of the hope that you have in Christ? Let me tell you something. Storms come in many varieties. In many shapes and in many sizes. Often we think of storms... Uh, we think only of our immediate context of hurts and pains. But there's also the storms of false doctrine. Listen to God's word in Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, 
the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Listen, the job of the ministry, of the church, and of the pastor is to protect the flock from the storms of false doctrine. That's why doctrine's vital. We weather the storm by holding firm to the promise of God. That salvation comes through Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, which were part of the Protestant Reformation. And three of the five solas, solus Christus, sola gratia, and sola fide. We trust in God. That's how we weather the storm. There will be storms that come into your life during troubling times, which will be storms of doubt and unbelief. Those times that, that we'll question the Christian faith, what we believe and why we believe it. Maybe even will cause us to question whether or not God even exists. We weather these storms by our anchor of hope, looking to our salvation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If He is not risen, then our faith is in vain, the Scripture says, and we are be, to be pitied above all else. However, if He is risen, then our future salvation is secure and certain, and hope is our anchor and we rest in it. There will be storms of difficulty. We're in the midst of suffering or troubled times. We wonder, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? And we may even question His love for us. We weather the storm by our anchor of hope, remembering that God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him for us all, and He has promised to bring us through every conceivable difficulty to our ultimate glorification. Romans chapter 8, verses 28-39. through We weather the storm by trusting that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't stop in the valley. And we have a shadow. And since there's a shadow, there must be light. Our anchor enables us to wait on God and weather the storm. There will be storms of defeat in your life where you'll give in to sin and we dishonor the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We will feel the sting of sin and the hurt that it brings. Oh, but our anchor of hope enables us to realize that Jesus is our high priest forever. That He's paid the price. That He's interceding for us to the Father that our faith will not fail. And by God's grace, we will be restored. Don't miss it. Our anchor of hope enables us to wait on God. And here's the beauty of it. Our anchor holds not because of our grip on it, but because of its grip on us. That is our hope. When we are ready to give everything up, we can't go on 
anymore. Our hope is not willing to give us up. When we're ready to quit, we hear the voice of our Savior say, I have a hold of you. And I will not let you go. And nothing can separate you from my love. You see, our hope is in His promises. That He will do all that He says. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. I may say to every believer in Jesus that his condition is very like that of the landsman on board the ship when the sea was rather rough. And he said, Captain, we are in great danger, are we not? As an answer did not come, he said, Captain, don't you see great fear? Then the old seaman gruffly replied, Yes, I see plenty of fear, but not a bit of danger. It is often so with us. When the winds are out and the storms are raging, there is plenty of fear, but there is no danger. We may be much tossed, but we are saved. For we have an anchor for our soul. It's both sure and steadfast, and it will never be moved. Church, we live in a world that has no hope. They have no anchor. They're around us every single day. They're living a hopeless life. That may be you this morning. Going through your anchor with no hope. The storm is coming. What will you do? Those of us that are believers, we should stand out in a world that has no hope. The certainty of our hope in a future salvation as the anchor of our soul should be a beacon. Our soul should be steady even in the times of a storm. There's nothing that can break the line to our anchor. God is greater than any obstacle you will face. And His oath overrules all. We are saved. And we are safe because of the promises of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our hope is anchored outside of us, not within us. It's anchored in heaven and anchored in Christ, and may the world see it. And if you don't have this hope, you may have it today. Let's close in prayer.